Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we cover mastering in its entirety, I guess we could say. Many varied guises. Exactly. <laughs> I'm Steve Cherubino. I'm just one of your hosts. And uh, let me introduce my other co-host, the man who brings the knowledge to the show, the master of mastering himself, Ian Shepard. What's up, Ian? I can't answer that. I'm English. We don't say what's up. What do you say? <laughs> you need to say like, how the devil are you? Or bollocks. Um, <laughs> no, that I would then say bollocks. <laughs> it's uh, no, hang on. So what did you ask me? What was the question? Uh, what's up? <laughs> so I have to say not much, right? Is that it? Not much. That's perfect. <laughs> in fact, he could, he could do the whole show in an American accent. That'd be great. American accent. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty bad. Um, but what's weird is when I'm doing an American accent, my voice goes kind of high. Whereas when I'm talking in English, it's a little bit low. Wow. It is totally that's, different. And yes, that's amazing. I don't know why that is. Anyway. No. So you said, what's up? And I'm going to say, well, not a great deal, actually. Really? Which is English for not much. I need like a glossary of, uh, you know, the English terms. Yeah. See, I, um, that was one of the, the best things about hanging out with Joe and Graham at Audio Bloggers Live a couple of weeks ago was just dropping in as many, you know, just being exaggeratedly English. Just, you know, trying trying to always remember to call them chaps or chums or pals. Or say cheers all, a lot. All that stuff. And yeah. tea and crimpets and stuff. Crumpets, darling. Crimpets. What's a crimpet? A crimpet, a crimpet is a tasty that's cake. A, that's a limpet crumpet or something. <laughs> Well, cool. Okay. So I think you can leave English, some of that in. Our English mastering engineer, Ian Shepard, is with us today. And uh, this is exciting, this show. It's, it's finally picking up some steam. Um, we're rolling along. We I pressed the launch button like 10 minutes ago. So anybody listening to this, this is seven weeks in your future. Exactly. Or maybe less because with the first three episodes are already out. But anyway. We did. We launched the show today. Figure that we, out. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So what what are we going to be covering today? I like when okay. you surprise me with the topic. So this has been a little mini series of episodes, right? We've had six or seven episodes covering each aspect of the mastering chain. And last week we got to the beginning, which was gain or level. So I'm calling this week advanced techniques. Um, Just when really they thought we couldn't get more advanced. Exactly. <laughs> See, they're not really advanced techniques because... Well, I mean, pe people will judge, but I'm calling them that because I want to get across the point that, so the things I'm thinking of, uh, stereo processing, mid-side processing, stem mastering, uh, using saturation or tape emulation or real tape or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the, the thing is, lots of people think that that's what mastering is. You know, they have this idea that that's what we do all day, but the reality is, I use those techniques on maybe one in 10 songs, hmm. probably. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk about any of these topics in a lot more detail. And if, you know, if people want that, let us know and we can do future episodes where we kind of really go into them in detail, but I only want to do the cover these in one episode because I feel like that helps get across the message that yeah, nine tenths of the time, you know, mastering is simple. Like I've said before, it's EQ compression, limiting, job done. Um, and I'm not even going to spend the whole of this episode talking about them because the other thing that I'm going to talk about first is actually creating a master. Okay. So, I mean, have you, have you released any CDs? I have not personally. Oh, I, you know what? I released a cassette when I created, I recorded an album in high school. And that's, see, that's cool because I thought, you know, maybe you were going to be too young to have even, like most people look at me kind of blankly when I say cassettes. They're making like, a comeback. Well, so I hear. Don't get me started on that. That's a that's a topic for a future episode. Um, okay, so you made a cassette. If you were going to make a CD, how do you think you would? What do you think you would have to do? What do you imagine is 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 a, is a CD master? I imagine that I would have uh, my mix, uh, my final mix down, and it I wouldn't make it too hot. I'd leave headroom in there, and just get it sounding as best I could before I handed it off. That's is that the question you mean? Um, not so much. How how do you hand it off? You're just going to send a file? Oh, I got you. Yeah. Um, I would probably send like a 24-bit wave. 
you could do that. You could certainly send it to me, uh, you know, if you're going to have it mastered. And that would be the right thing to do if you're sending it off to a mastering engineer. But as a mastering engineer or as somebody who wants to submit something for manufacturing, what you need is a thing called a DDP image. Oh, did not know D- that. Yeah, that's what DDP stands for. Did not. Oh, no, it doesn't. It actually stands for Disk Description Protocol. Um, so it's basically, it's a fancy name for a disk image. It's kind of like people might have uh, made ISO files or DMG files. Um, you know, if you if you rip a CD, the whole CD in one chunk onto a hard drive, or if you're using Toast or WaveBurner or one of those programs. Um, so it's like that, but it's the professional file format. Um, so they used to be on these things called exabyte tapes, which were data cartridges. Before that, there wasn't even a DDP image, and you had a thing called a umatic tape, which was a a huge, like literally kind of twenty centimeters wide video cartridge that was played in this massive machine and all the rest of it. Hmm. The good thing about a DDP image, there's a few good things about it. One is that uh, people can't play them. Uh, well, at least they can. If if you get your stuff mastered by somebody like me, then I'll send you a special player application so that you can play it and burn listening copies. Why but, is that a good thing? Because they can't be messed with. Ah. So back in the day, we used to supply DDP images on CD-ROM discs these days you can send them, you know, using Dropbox or FTP or whatever, you know, WeTransfer, whatever kind of online delivery system you choose. And some of the plants have special systems for uploading them to their servers. Um, but yeah, the if you have a playable CD and you send it to the client, they're going to put it in a machine, they're going to play it, they're going to kick it around, give it to the dog to chew, and then they're going to send it off to the plant and expect it to work perfectly. And right. chances are it won't. So does a DDP have all the songs in it? Yeah, it has everything. It has all the songs. It also has all of the metadata. So it has, you can put things called ISRC codes onto a CD master, which is a unique identifying code so that if you get radio play, you'll get logged automatically and get your royalties. Um, You can put the barcode on there that goes on the packaging. Uh, You can put the title and artist information, which will be read by some tiny proportion of players out there in the world. Mm. Um, And all the track start and end details, um, which kind of sound really basic, but actually you've got quite a lot of flexibility in editing them if the software supports it. So you can like you can do stuff. Um, you're not supposed to, but what I like to do with live albums is say you've got 20 minutes of chat in between the songs. You can put the end flag of one song just after the song ends, and you can have all the chat in the countdown for the next track, and then the start of the next track when that happens. Oh. So that means that it'll play through continuously from beginning to end when you listen to it as an album. But if people skip ahead, it will jump straight into the beginning of the song without having to listen to the chat. I see. Which is nice. So there's there's that kind of thing. All of that is packaged up in this single file. And the, the, the other really important thing about it is it includes extra error detection that a CD doesn't have. The, the error detection in a CD is actually not that, that fancy. Um, so which is why a playable CD is quite vulnerable. And that's why we used to prefer sending a DDP image on a CDR rather than a playable CD because they couldn't play it, so they wouldn't mess with it. They'd just leave it in the case, and that's what they'd send to the plant, and it was safer. And these days, it just means it's it's easier to verify that the data has been sent securely because you can can use – it's a thing called a checksum file that goes in there so the plant can make sure that it downloaded safely, all that kind of stuff. Do most dolls – are they able to make these types of files? I wouldn't say most. Um – so I use WaveLab. That that supports them. Studio One will do you a DDP image. There you go. Uh, there used to be an application with Logic called WaveBurner, but they don't do that anymore. So I don't think you can do it. There's a plugin made by a company. I think it's called Hoffa, H-O-F-A, that you can use in Pro Tools or Logic and other doors that will enable you to do it. And then there are standalone applications. There's a thing called Sonoris DDP Creator, um, so yeah, there, there, there's various different pieces of software that will create them, but not necessarily any door. Got it. So if you wanted to make a DDP image, um, then you can still master in any DAW, but you would then have to create, find a way to create a DDP image. I see. So that's the, that's the master format that you use to create and you know, we don't have time to go into, into huge detail here, but if people are interested, we could we could do it, talk about it in a future episode. 
for me, that's quite an, that's a quite an important aspect of it. I mean, you know, back in the day, mastering was all about creating the master. Uh, you know, we talked about that in in the first episode about how it, the whole process was much simpler. These days, the creative aspect of it um, is more important. Um, it's evolved. Yeah, it's it's evolved. And but creating a master is. I mean, the, the first most important thing to do when you're mastering is put the right tracks in the right order with some decent gaps. And that sounds really basic, but I can tell you from bitter experience that you don't always do it right. And when you don't, the customers get really pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> they probably think to themselves, damn, if this guy can't get this right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's that's embarrassing. Sure. You only do it once. Yep. yep. And it was a long time ago, honest. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um. So, So, yeah, there's that. And that's the kind of the finishing off process of the whole thing. Then we get into what I'm calling the advanced techniques. Okay. Um, and it's this kind of fancy stuff. So I'll start with the stuff that I do most often, which would probably be stereo image uh, manipulation. Have you ever manipulated the stereo image of your music? I have. Through, I mean, I do it mainly through panning. I have, there are plugins that do it, but... That, Nothing stock in Studio One, and I haven't used any third-party stuff, but I know there's stuff in Cubase and Fruity and different places, and I haven't messed with it too much. And Ozone. Uh, I stop Ozone. Yeah, okay, because Ozone has the multi-band thing, I think, where you can, like, say, narrow the bass and widen something else. Um, it's. I mean, I have to say it's quite a nice thing to do at the mastering stage because it makes quite a subtle but noticeable change for the client. So you have to be disciplined about not just using it to get cheap thrills. <laughs> um, and what does it do? It just creates more space. It just sounds like there's more separation. You can do either. I guess what I would say is that, so if people want to try this, my advice is to keep it simple. There are a bunch of stereo, uh, stereoizer and kind of stereo enhancement plugins out there that are disgusting. Um, I mean, they do really horrible things to, you know, they claim to make stereo out of mono and all kinds of stuff, and right. it's it's nonsense. All that the stuff I use does is either narrow or widen the image. So narrowing is literally like panning the left and right further in. Gotcha. So if you pan them both to the middle, you end up with something that sounds mono. Widening is a little bit more tricky, and it kind of relates to the next topic I'm going to talk about, which is something called mid and side processing. So we're used to the audio being stored as a left and a right signal. There is another way of storing the signal that's completely equivalent, which is called M and S, or mid and side. The mid is just what happens when you mono the signal. You put both channels together. The side is what happens when you mono them together, but you flip the polarity of one of them. All right. All right. So one of them is left plus right, and the other one is left minus right. Okay? So mid is middle... And mid-side? Mid-side is both. Mid is middle, and side is... So side is the stereo information. So if you imagine... Let's imagine you do this to a normal mix. Uh, you've got a stereo mix. Uh, you've probably got bass, vocals, snare, kick in the middle. Mm -hmm. Then um, maybe a guitar hard left and a guitar hard right. Um, and kind of reverb spread around, and maybe a keyboard pad spread around and some other stuff in the middle. Yeah. So if you mono it, you will hear pretty much all of that in mono if you do the uh left minus right which is the side signal you hear the edges of the signal so you hear you hear all the reverb right that the mid the stuff that's in the middle disappears that's the key bit all of those things that are normally panned mono because you're doing left minus right right and you've, if you've got something that's in both the left and the right channel when you subtract one from the other they they cancel out i see make sense yes so you get what's left which is the stuff at the edges um and that's actually what's used i mean there's a there's a microphone technique called ms miking where you you have a mono cardioid mic pointing straight ahead and then a figure of eight crosswise with it so that one picks up the, the middle of the signal and one picks up the edges okay and then you recombine those later um that's not really relevant for mastering, but it kind of... No, it's good to know. I'm yeah. curious about that. The nice thing about mid and side is, for example, if, you, if your stereo image is too 
wide, you can reduce the amount of side signal and you'll get more mono signal, which is like panning it in, like I say. But if your image is too narrow, meaning it's very mono and you want to hear more stereo spread, you can pull out the mid signal and get more of the side signal and the stereo image spreads out. And that's how you use it in mastering. That's why I use it. Um, you can take any stereo signal, convert it to mid-side, reduce the mid-signal or boost the side signal, same thing, and you will hear more of the stuff in the edges. So, for example, you will hear probably more of the reverb. You might hear more of the stereo image of the cymbals. Um, yeah, it brings up all of the, the subtle stuff that's hanging around the edges, um, which is why it's quite a nice thing to do, because it can make things sound more three-dimensional um, and more spacious. The If you overdo it, it can be bad as well because everything starts to kind of sound hollow and almost like inside out. Right. Um, I mean, actually, if you have something that is purely side signal, if you play somebody a low frequency bass tone where there's no mono information at all, some people will actually throw up. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it makes them feel physically nauseous. Um, That's and awesome. It, I, have well, you I ever tried that, that, like at a party or something like that? <laughs> Nah, it wouldn't work at a party because people have to be sitting right in the sweet spot. And I mean, that just doesn't happen, right? Um, well, let me ask you this. Which plugin do you use for this? I use the one made by Melda Production. Gotcha. Um, but there are a, a bunch of them. Um, I guess the challenge is to find one that's only doing this simple stuff um, because even the Melda Production one has all this multiband business that I don't really use. Um, but if you, even if you have one that does multiband, like say the one in ozone, you could either reduce it down. So it's only working in a single band, or if you do the same thing in all the bands, it should be roughly equivalent. Um, so multiband is, remember when we talked about it in terms of compression, it just handles different frequency ranges differently. So, um, I mean, one place where it can be useful is if you are, if your stuff's going to be going to vinyl. Uh, vinyl can't cope with lots of stereo information in the bass. Right. Um, so it's very common to actually make sure that the majority of the bass is pretty much mono when you're doing a, a vinyl cut. Um, and back in the day, they used to use a thing called an elliptical filter. These days you could use a multiband processor to manipulate the stereo width. So say everything from, I don't know, 80 hertz downwards, you could really narrow or even turn it to complete mono. Gotcha. Another thing you might want to do, uh, you know, sometimes you get something where actually there's some stereo information happening in maybe not the very low bass, but sort of the kind of 100 hertz range. Um, let's say toms in the drum kit. Um, maybe you've got some some panned guitars and you don't want to mess with that. Um, you want to make it any wider, right. but you do want to get some extra spread in the high frequencies. So that's another case where using a multiband processor might be useful. But okay. most of the time with stereo processing, I j literally just either raise or lower the side signal to affect the overall stereo image. Gotcha. And there's a blog post and a video actually on my site where I go into quite a lot more detail about this. So we could put that in the show notes for people if they, they want to dig deeper into this. Yeah, sounds good. So that's stereo processing. And then, I mean, we already talked a bit about mid-side. You can get more extreme. I've, I've just been talking about basically using mid and side processing to, to affect the stereo image. But once you've separated the mid and the side signal, you can actually do completely different processing to them. So the most common thing that I might do with that is EQ. And an example would be, well, let's say you've got widely panned toms in a drum kit and they're really boomy. Yeah. Uh, say, you know, maybe 100 hertz. But 100 hertz is a really important frequency for the bass. Right. Now, the bass is panned centrally in the stereo image. So if you just EQ the side signal, it will only affect the toms that have been panned out to the left and the right, and it won't affect the bass that is in the middle on the M signal. So in some cases, that can be a really invaluable tool. It's also one of those cases of with great power comes great responsibility because you can also monumentally mess up a mix using mid-side processing. Um, to understand why that is, just imagine, let's say you've got a guitar panned at maybe two o'clock in the stereo image. Okay. So it's kind of pretty much evenly split between the mid and the side. If you put some really heavy EQ on the mid signal, say, let's say you've got, a, you've got the opposite of what I just said. You have a boomy bass, 
but you've got some nice guitars left and right where you don't want to mess up the, the low end. So you put in an EQ to reduce that boom in the bass, in the, the mid signal, in the mono signal. That's going to take that same bass out of the guitar or the bit of the guitar that's closer to the middle and to the edges, right? Because right. it's midway. Yep. So now if the guitar is a mono image, which it usually would be, just a single instrument panned at one location, now you've changed it. You've now got, let's say the the EQ is, you know, it's 100 hertz and it stops doing anything by the time you get above 500 hertz. So above 500 hertz, you've got this guitar that is still perfectly mono. Below, 100, below 500 hertz and at 100 hertz in particular, the guitar has different EQ in the side of the signal than in the mid of the signal. So it kind of, I kind of imagine this guitar being stretched in the low end. It's like the, the, which way would it be? If you're cutting bass in the mid, you'd hear more of the bass from that guitar coming out of the edges than the middle. If you're cutting That's, bass in the mid, you would have more bass of the guitar. In the edges. The, in the edges, gotcha. Com comparatively, yeah? yeah. So. This thing that used to be this lovely mono thing is now this kind of slightly smeared. I mean, it could be quite a cool effect. I mean, one way that people try and make mono into stereo is by applying different EQ to the left and the right. Um, but you need to be careful with it is basically the point. Uh, it can work. And if you're careful with it, it absolutely can solve all kinds of problems that you couldn't otherwise get around. But you also have the potential to make something really odd sounding happen. Um, what kind of sounds does it make when you? really screw with that well a really extreme case would be if you have one of your speakers wired in incorrectly if you accidentally reverse the plus and the minus wires going to a loudspeaker then what suddenly happens is that everything that should be in the middle of the image is at the edges of the image and everything at the edges of the image is at the middle of the image so it's kind of like it's been turned inside out um, you're not going to get it that extreme obviously but if you really went over the top with the eq you could have that appear to happen with some of the instruments in the mix. Gotcha. Um, and I actually, sometimes you have the opposite. Sometimes you have stuff where they sound a bit like that anyway. It's the kind of effect you can have if, let's say, somebody has had two mics on an instrument um, and they kind of, they just happen to have been pointing in slightly weird directions. Maybe somebody's miking up an acoustic guitar and they've got one, you know, on the, on the soundboard and another one up close to the neck. Yeah. And they haven't lined them up carefully and you... And then if they pan them quite widely in the stereo image, you kind of have this weird mega guitar kind of effect. Where, yeah. And again, it's kind of boomy on one side and tinny on the other. Mid-side EQ might be able to help with that because you could reduce some of that boominess in the edges of the signal and, and lift it out a bit in the middle to get a more even frequency response. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you might do in mastering if you have a mix with a, with a problem. I, I actually had to do something like this with a... I remastered a bunch of stuff by Keen um, for the deluxe uh, edition of Hopes and Fears. Sweet. Um, yeah, it was really cool. Um, and they had uh, a bunch of demos on there as the as the bonus content, live live tracks and demos. And the demos were a bit of a nightmare because all they had was MP3s. Huh. Um, and they really were demos. You know, they were back before they got signed. And one of those had a really kind of extreme weirdness happening with the with the the mid-side balance of all the EQ. And I got really stuck in on that to try and get it to sound just kind of more normal. Um, it still sounded a bit odd, but it sounded a lot better than when it started out. Good. Um, so yeah, that's that's an that's an example of when it can be valuable. What do you what? use for mid-side processing? Like personally? So the TC electronic stuff that I really like has it built in. Um, but these days I would suggest, uh, I mean, FabFilter, the Pro-Q EQ has, you can choose, it's, it's actually really flexible. Melder Production enables it, but it, last time I tried it, it wasn't as user-friendly. Ozone has mid-side stuff built in. I would actually say that possibly Ozone makes it too easy. Um <laughs> which is something I'm going to come back to in a little bit later when I'm talking about reverb. Um, because I do think, you know, it, th these are kind of rescue strategies using mid-side processing because you're really getting in there and messing around with the original mix when you do this. Um, so 
in an ideal world, if something comes in and it needs mid-side processing, actually you would send it back for a remix. Um, of course, it's not always an ideal world. Quite often the band need the master tomorrow to go to the plant right. or you know, they can't afford any more studio time for a remix or it's a demo from 10 years ago and this MP3 is all they have. You know, um, So it's definitely valuable, but it's not something that people feel they should use on every mix. It shouldn't be a kind of standard issue technique. Uh, it's kind of for special occasions. So yeah, in, in some ways, the fact that it's so easy to access this stuff in Ozone makes me slightly uncomfortable, um, but it is very convenient. Um, to be honest, most manufacturers now have enabled it in in one way or another. It, it used to be a really esoteric kind of trick of the mastering trade that nobody knew about. People have gradually caught on and it's now more common. I see. One thing I would say not to do is to use mid-side compression. Um because that has all of the effects that I was talking about, but it changes over time. So it's one thing to have, you know, a kind of slightly smeary guitar, but if that guitar uh, kind of, if you imagine a compressor working, <laughs> yeah, it's going to, when the compressor's not working, let's say you're adding more bass in the side, the guitar is kind of, the low end of the guitar is going to be pulled out to the side of the image, say to the left, and then the compressor cuts in in the side signal and reduces that, the guitar is basically going to appear to move around in the stereo image depending on what it's playing. Which, I mean, I guess you could use that as a creative effect. You know, guitar players right. do sometimes move, but especially if you're kind of creating an image of a, if you have a, a full band set up, there are very few acoustic guitars that can kind of leap from stage left to the center and back again within <laughs> the course of a bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's unlikely to sound uh, good. So I think I've used mid-side compression once in mastering I see. ever um so what, yeah that, what, what, was it, what, what did you use it for i think it was on that keen track um i think that was like i said i really had to dig in there and sort it out and i think i think they i'm trying to remember exactly what it was about it i could take a listen and remind myself i think they had a really screaming guitar kind of panned over to one side and i had to i wanted to control that with mid-side compression um but also then rebalance the EQ afterwards. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but uh, it sounds like a nightmare. It or is, at least, or at least a challenge. Yeah, it's well, it's as as an engineer, it's it is. It's an interesting challenge, but it's it's a once in a blue moon thing, right? right. And speaking of once in a blue moon things, I mentioned reverb. Literally, um, no more than four or five times ever that I've used reverb in a mastering session. Um, the only reason I mention it is that you see it quite a lot in some of the online YouTube stuff. Really? And it used to be built into Ozone. They've actually taken it out, which I'm really pleased about, because I think having it there made it seem like something that you should use. It's the same as the mid, having mid-side processing just kind of so easy to use. It kind of creates the impression that, yeah, this is what we do. This is what mastering is. We do. And no, I mean, if, if your mix needs reverb, remix it. Yeah. Now you say it was built in, like or automatic. Was it automatically turned on? No, they oh, had. Okay. Um, I mean, you know how Ozone works. It kind of has, it kind of has different modules, um, and you can enable or disable the different modules. But it was there all the time, yeah. kind of sitting there saying, "Click me, click me." Ah, uh, I got you. <laughs> um, and and now it's not, and I'm pleased about that because, yeah, mid-side processing you use sometimes, reverb almost never. You know, I mean, if you, I mean, the times when I have used it has been something really simple, like uh, solo voice and piano, or voice and acoustic guitar. I've only used it on a on a full mix, maybe once or twice ever, and mm. that was that was specifically because a customer insisted on it. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's just you don't have enough control to add reverb in the mastering stage usually. Right. Um, so yeah, I I kind of mentioning it to tell you guys not to do it. Another thing that. I would say not to use if you can help it, but that lots of people imagine we use all the time is stem mastering. Do you know what stem mastering is? Yeah, you don't just get like a stereo track to master. You get a series of tracks, like maybe all the drums, all the guitars, all of a particular instrument, all the vocals in its own track. Yeah, exactly. It's, again, it's 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 very powerful and useful for for rescue jobs in you know that situation where the band can't afford any more studio time or there just isn't enough time if you have the stems you know and let's say so i mean a classic problem that 
is very hard to solve in mastering is where you have, let's say, one element of the mix is very bright and another element is very dull. So the classic conflict would be, say, vocals and drums. You know, if you have uh, dull vocal and bright drums, you're basically stuffed. Because if you try, I mean, as, it's, as it is, it doesn't sound ideal. And if you try boosting the high end of the vocals to bring out that life, the drums just get unbearably bright. And if you flip around, you know, the, the same thing is true right. the other way. And that situation always ends up with a compromise. Now, that's not to say I wouldn't do it, and I'm not happy to do it quite often, because if that's a mixed decision and something that's been, you know, carefully chosen, A, who am I to mess with that? Um, and B, when you get the balance right, it can use, you know, they obviously got it to work in their studio on their mixing setup. The fact that it doesn't sound right when you get to the mastering stage is, is normal, right? Because it's just this whole business about translation and very flat monitoring and all the things that we've talked about already. Right. So if you then adjust the EQ and find that perfect balance, it should work for you just as it worked for them in the studio. Right. Makes sense. But sometimes you do get things where really it just isn't ideal. And obviously, if you've got access to the stems, then you can fix that because you can apply an EQ separately to the vocals and the drums or the guitars and the drums or whatever it is. Well, let me ask you this. Do, do you find that having a stereo master track will usually sound different than the st all the stems mixed together? In other words, they're giving you the stems because it, it should equal, if you put a, play them all at the same time, it should equal their mix. Do you find that's not the case? That depends on what kind of, if they have any processing on the on the stereo output. So if they have, let's say they have a you know an SSL bus compressor on the stereo output, you can't that will re respond differently to all the elements of the mix going through it at the same time right than it will to each of the elements going through individually well even what if it e there's nothing on the master no if there's nothing on the master if there's nothing on the master bus then it should sound identical okay and that's that's usually you know if i'm uh sometimes people request stem mastering and I'm kind of happy to oblige because I get to charge them more money because it takes more time because there's, there's more variables. Um, but I usually say I would prefer not to, you know, I, like I, I think kind of philosophically it's better to just work from a stereo mix because that's what they, you know, that's their creation. You know, that's right. what they've been working on all this time. Why is it up to me to second guess that? I don't think it should be, but sometimes people insist. And sometimes there's a problem that I just, you know, you usually when there's a problem, you go back to the clients, you you try and explain it to them, and they try and fix it. And if they nail that fix first time, then you're good to go, and that's the ideal situation. Sometimes they come back and they fix the thing that you were worrying about, but they've caused another problem, or they've missed the thing that you were worried about and they haven't quite fixed it. And it sometimes it's a communication issue. Sometimes they are just hearing things differently than you, but you kind of get this sense that actually it would be quicker to just request stems and do it as part of the mastering process. If that happens, then obviously when I request the stems, I talk through them the whole issue of whether there's processing on the stereo bus and we've got to get these things to sound the same when you add them together and we can we can fix all of that. Um, sometimes it's not in, under your control. I, I don't know that it... I guess it depends to what extent they're using it. You know, if, if the master yeah. bus processing is quite lightweight, um, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference and you can usually... Usually the stuff that I do... Uh, my intuition tells me what they wanted and I end up getting a similar result. Right. But there right. are people who use, say, compression on the, on the stereo output really heavily when they're mixing and it's a kind of integral part of their mix and they switch it off and everything falls to pieces. Right. Um, so in those cases, stem mastering is not going to work out. Exactly. Now, do, um, you, do you find in, when somebody requests stem mastering that you'll still just be putting effects on the entire mix anyway? Yeah, sometimes. Okay. Um, you know, yeah, there, there are definitely people. I mean, and in that case, you're kind of like, oh, my wasted disk space and, and my wasted bandwidth. Because, you know, you get four times, six times as many files as you would otherwise have. And you have to line them all back up in the mastering. And then you listen to it and you go, well, this is fine. And you just master it normally. Right. Okay, um, good. That's how you figured. Yeah. It's, and I, it's interesting because we were talking about this. Um, people get quite annoyed about this kind of stuff. Because here's the thing. STEM mastering is not really stem mastering it's stem mixing yeah right it, you know you you're you don't have the full range of tracks but it's still you're effectively 
you're doing something prior to the mastering stage. Mastering right. is supposed to be processing a stereo mix. So it's a definite blurring of boundaries. And yeah, some people get very hot under the collar and, and say that it's wrong of mastering engineers to get involved in this stuff and they should, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, really? blah. Uh, yeah, um, I, I'm kind of, I'm more relaxed about it. You know, it's sometimes it's, you can suggest it to the client and you can do something that makes them think you're a miracle worker. Um, other times you can solve a problem that otherwise would be very difficult to solve. But most of the time I prefer not to do it. So gotcha. I, I never, if people say, do you want stems or do you want stereo mixes? I always say stereo mixes, please. And then if, when I hear them, I think there's a problem, then we can talk about stems. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my point in talking about it today is again, to say that it's, it is a valid approach. It can be very powerful, but I don't think people should regard it as business as usual. That's why I'm kind of upset that uh, Native Instruments, I think it is, have released actually a file format. Am I right about that? Called Stems, yes. where it's it's kind of built in. And you're upset about that? Yeah, you're the you're the second person I heard be upset about that. It, it's for DJs. I guess. Yeah. I mean, if if it's for DJs, that's fine. But I I still think it. This is where I start to have sympathy with the people who get upset about the idea of stem mastering because. Um, so Brian Lucy, who I was talking to at Audio Bloggers Live, was he, he's one of those guys who says, you know, this encourages fear in the mixers, right? It makes people second guess themselves. They think, oh, I'm not going to get this right. I should leave this up to the mastering engineer. Like, he's like, no, you're the mixer, you know, you're, you're the producer, whoever you are. This is your call. This is your creative vision. This is your art. You should take responsibility for it. You should own it and you should have confidence and you should have passion and you should go for it. Um, and I kind of agree with that. And the more flexibility, it's kind of like the, the argument that says, actually, in some ways, it's better to have less tracks in a mix. You know, if you have 24 tracks, you're going to make really good use of those tracks. If you have 148, you know, you end up with 10 guitar parts and you don't know which one to use. Right. Um, I, so, yeah, I don't get really upset about it, especially, I mean, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, no, people are going to start sending me stem files for mastering. No, things. no, I bet, you ne I bet you'll never get one in your life. Well, I've been given MP3s to master, so I bet I do. Um, but it hasn't happened yet, happily. Um, Especially with the direction Native is going. They're, they're all about, like, style of music. Like, well, they're very EDM-y, I think, and I just think it's for DJs. I, have, I strongly believe that that's what it was created, so they could mix, do their mixes better live. But that's just yeah, I, I think, I'm sure you're right, and, and I think as far as that goes, it's worthwhile. I still have some – I read the documentation to it, and I still have some questions because they're kind of – they talk about that whole process of getting the stems to add up to the same as the mix. Yeah. Um, and therefore adding compression and limiting. And I, it's the way that that's applied that I question whether it can be as good as dedicated processing as part of the mix. But anyway, that's, you know, I've, I've not done any testing. That's just me kind of being an OCD mastering engineer. Um, I'm sure it's <laughs> fine. That's cool. Yeah. I haven't played with them either myself, but. I'm sure the DJs are happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think the last thing that I was thinking of talking about in terms of advanced techniques um, is things like tape emulation and saturation. Um, have you used any of those? You played around with those? I don't because I mainly do EDM and it's it's not a desired thing that I found so far to get like that old school tape sound. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I... I think, again, I'm mentioning it because I think it's something that people imagine is part and parcel of every master. Um, and actually, again, for me, it's a, it's a special effect. It's, a, it's a, uh, yeah, once in a blue moon. Um, because I feel that that kind of stuff, those are creative decisions that should be part of the mix. Um, I agree. And most of the... Well, having worked with that many real tapes, I'm very skeptical about the people who run things out to tape and then back in again. Um, I'm not saying that's not a valid approach, but usually all you're introducing is a little bit of noise, a little bit of distortion, a little bit of wow and flutter and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, have you heard of that CLASP system? I have heard of CLASP, yeah, and it's... I mean, I've heard people who have used it and have said, eh, it's not quite there. It's kind of an interesting idea and it doesn't quite work. Uh, um, so I've, I've seen it in a studio around here. Yeah, I, I haven't tried it, so I, ca I can't really comment. But um, I think the other thing to say is that saturation and tube emulation and tape emulation, all this stuff is is 
everybody, I just, it's so overused for me at the moment. I hear so many mixes that just have far too much of that stuff on them. Um, what, what, how can you tell that it's there? It just, how does it sound? Well, it, it usually just sounds overcooked, you know, it usually sounds distorted and unnecessarily dense and crushed, gotcha. um, you know, and, and typically when I hear something like that, I kind of say, oh, have you used anything? And they go, oh yeah, it was the um, a PSP vintage warmer or something. Um, and you say, well, just out of interest, send me one without that so I can compare. And what comes back is it's like night and day. Really? Um, and then I, so, so, but you know, I mean, it's useful to know because I can then take their master and know that they had that in mind. Right. But right. literally in every single time that has happened, I've uh, mastered from the unprocessed files and got a, a result that they preferred to their original mix or to their original. With, you mean without putting any type of. Well, we're putting some of it on, but being much okay. more uh, conservative. So you yeah. just use it to get a flavor rather than, because I think all of the, one of my problems with all of this stuff is it all kind of relies on you just pushing the level right up into, into the input of it, you know, right. and everything right. ends up kind of crushed out at the top end of the scale. Um, and yeah, you can either use it in a kind of parallel processing situation, or you can, there are different ways to, to use it to get some of that flavor without it kind of just flatlining the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I find it much more refreshing to get stuff that isn't covered in all of that stuff. Um, and again, usually sometimes I get things where I think, oh, maybe it needs a little bit of this and I try it out and I kind of play around with it and eventually I end up switching it off again, um, and achieving something similar, but just using EQ compression limiting, um, you know, my, the, the good old standards. Right. So yeah, again, it's it's a valid approach. It's something that people can do, but in mastering, I feel like it should be the exception rather than the rule. Um, and, th you know, that applies, and people have probably got the message by now, that applies to all the stuff we've talked about in this episode. All of these things are kind of tools that you have in the toolbox, um, and you just bring them out now and again just to for that particular track or maybe this project or rather than... You know, you see some people and they have all this stuff stacked up by default in their mastering chain. They go, oh, this is my mastering chain. And they list seven to 10 plugins. Um, and I kind of say to them, well, my standard mastering chain is one plugin. <laughs> um, now it's cheating, A, because I'm ignoring the meters um, and the analyzers, and B, because it's a three-in-one thing. So it does <laughs> EQ compression. But, but you know, if I'm be, even if I'm being completely honest, it's three plugins right. that actually right. process the sound is my standard mastering chain. Um, which is EQ compression and limiting. Um, and, you know, the, the magic of mastering, the black art and all the rest of it, is knowing this stuff about balancing levels, is uh, all of the things that we've talked about in the other episodes leading up to this one. You use all of those techniques and those approaches and put them all together right, you can, it can have an amazing effect on the impression that the music gets, even with quite subtle moves. Right. And that's that's why I find it such a fascinating thing to do. You know, the, it still amazes me how much you can achieve just using a stereo mix and just EQ and limiting um, <laughs> and maybe a little bit of compression. You know, it you can transform this collection of songs that don't really hang together into this kind of cohesive, uh, you know, satisfying musical journey, you know, where it it does everything that everybody wants it to. And you kind of look at it and go, well, all I did was this, this, you know, little things here and there. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's why I love it. That's very cool, man. I, I could totally see how you could get kind of addicted to like getting that product every time, you know, like that's what you're going for. It's got, you got the puzzle pieces and you put them together in this cohesive hole. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, part of it is I'm lazy. <laughs> you know, because I never knew I wanted to be a mastering engineer. When I started out, I thought I wanted to be a recording and mix engineer. I don't yeah. actually think I have the patience for it. You know, I, I, I think, I mean, I've done recording and mixing um, most of it with kind of jazz artists, and that's cool because they're all super rehearsed, and and they come in and you know, it's like a day or two's recording, a day or two's mixing, master it, and you're done. And and that is is really enjoyable. But the thought of spending three six months a year more with a band who don't even have any songs yet, and you know, <laughs> days working on the snare sound, that would drive me insane. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Whereas mastering, you get this, you know, this, uh, you get to play God. You know, they they come in six hours later, they go out, and they're absolutely delighted. They think you've worked miracles. Um, it's uh, it's great for your ego. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I could see that. I could see that. I never thought of it that way, but damn. Well, and it's very interesting, you know, because it's a different project every day. Um, yeah. You know, and, and literally there have been... So my favorite was the day when I sent out two masters. Uh, one of them was Poulenc, the French classical composer, and the other one was Megadeth. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Literally, that was my morning and my afternoon. Wow. You measured Megadeth's album? Uh, it was, song? it was a, no, it, that was a very lo fi uh, live gig for, um, for a DVD soundtrack. Oh, so. sweet. That's awesome. That's hilarious. It was actually, it was awesome because it was basically a camera at the back of somebody's bedroom. It was like really early. Um, so it was, yeah, somebody with a, with a, you know, an old VHS camcorder at the back of the room. And basically, they just had a bunch of candles. Um, and I think maybe a, a kind of an upside down crucifix on the wall or something. And it's just, it's kind of, you know, lots and lots of hiss. And then somebody go, Ooh! and then it's kind of thrashing guitars and it would stop again. I apologize to the Megadeth fans listening to this. It was, uh, actually maybe that wasn't Megadeth, that project. Anyway, definitely there was a day when it was Megadeth and Poulenc was on the, was on the menu. Wow. That's great. Well, this is a great episode, man. You covered a lot of cool stuff. Um, it's like the finishing touches like the little extra adds for mastering that uh, people I'm sure had questions about. I know I did. Yeah, exactly. Pull it, pulling it all together. Um, and as I say, I'm happy to go into more detail on any of those topics in future episodes. Um, you know, if people want to get in touch with us and tell us what they want to know more about. Well, I know people will be getting in touch with us if you don't tell us what this week's Mastering Maxim is. You're right. I almost forgot. Okay, so... We've touched on so many different things this week that I think it would be a bit bizarre to kind of pick another extra one out of the blue. So I'm going to do a kind of all-inclusive maxim for this week, which is to be a minimalist. You know, I said way back at the beginning that the reason I explained all these processes of the mastering stage in reverse order is that if you can start with just a level change and that's all you need, that's great. You know, if you... It, there have been times when I have sat and listened through to an entire album and said, okay, it's that's fine. That sounds great. I still consider that I mastered that album. The process of listening, assessing, thinking about all the stuff that we've talked about. And even if you then decide you don't need to make any changes to get that right, you've still mastered the album, bizarre as it sounds. Um, and I think the same thing applies, especially to the stuff we're talking about this week. You should feel happier if you can master stuff without using any of these advanced techniques than if you have to use a ton of them. You know, I mean, it can be really satisfying to to go in there and to, to throw the kitchen sink at something and to transform, you know, this little tinny thing into this huge, pounding, magnificent beast. Uh, but really, the, the, the truly great masters are the ones where you kind of go in and you turn, turn it up by half a dB and you just shave a db off the top end and that's it you know hmm. um remember you would never do that for an entire album remember that it's working on songs song by song each song needs to be treated in its own right and that's yeah. that's actually where the magic happens i mean i just said you know it's amazing how much you can achieve by all these tiny little moves but the fact is if those moves are in opposite directions that's where you know suddenly one thing that kind of sounded thin and dry in comparison to something else that kind of sounded kind of big and warm, suddenly they fit together much better right. just because you've moved one of them slightly one way and one of them slightly the other way. And you do that over eight, 10, 12 songs. That's where the huge impact from the small changes comes from. But yeah, always as minimal as possible. Always do the least you can to achieve your goal. Um, and that kind of reminds me of another thing, which is with mastering, it's not what you do, it's why. Yeah, it's the goal is to have a cohesive, satisfying listening experience that brings out the the very best of everything that was there to begin with, not to kind of transform it into this thing that it was never intended to be. Um, so that's why I say that I don't have any kind of sound when I'm mastering. It's not like I stamp my my signature on the stuff right. that comes through. It's like you listen first, kind of try and be humble and, and hear what's great about it already and just make it more. Um, so 
two different albums, even in the same genre, could end up sounding actually quite different from each other, right. but both fantastic in their own right. And I guess that's another kind of aspect to, to minimalism is, is to not try and go too far, you know, uh, appreciate the music for what it is and bring the best out of it without trying to, to change it. So again, do the minimum that you can for the maximum result. I love it, man. I can see how that's very satisfying and it's great advice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope if people listening, you know, I mean, it, we've started off this, this podcast by hopefully loads of information that will help people who want to, to try this stuff themselves, get better at it and, uh, get great results. But I also hope that even if people are just listening out of interest, they will, it'll help them understand, you know, what goes in, what can and can't be achieved at the mastering stage, what you might expect a mastering engineer to do for you or not. And, you know, and why and how that works. And hopefully, you know, that can be just as valuable, just as, uh, as interesting. Yeah. I'm sure mastering engineers around the world would be, appreciate that. Well, cool, man. Like I said before, great show, great information. And um, guys, if you have any questions for us or want to contact us in any way, make sure you head over to our website. It's themasteringshow.com. We have our contact information there. You could also sign up for our hot list. Being on the hot list will let you know every time that we create a new show and give us any other information that we have, any news that we want to broadcast. Um, we're going to put send it out to you guys. So make sure you sign up for that. It will be a valuable resource. Absolutely. And please head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, leave us a rating or review. Uh, help spread the word. Tell your friends if you like it. Um, like Steve says, get in touch with us um, to let us know what you like, what you don't like about the show, what else you would like to know, what you'd like us to cover. Um, you can get me on Twitter at Ian Shepherd, or on Facebook. Uh, just search for me. You'll find me. Or on my website, which is productionadvice.co.uk. And you could find me at edmr.com. That's edmr.com. We have contact form there, and uh, that's where I have some of my other shows, as well as this show. Well, well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. I think that's going to about wrap it up for this week's episode of The Mastering Show. Absolutely. Thanks for listening.